0: Of October thirty first, twenty twenty one. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode five. Hold on, hold on. I'm sorry, Sperling. I I should have
1: told you. uh, We've changed the name of the show. We are now called. Wait for it. Meta Plus. Plus. They forgot the plus. We are Meta Plus now. Keep going.
0: Okay. Well, in in case Meta Plus. This is the first time I think I've ever been interrupted during the first moments of the... You know what? We are the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. And I am Jay Sperling-Reich in Los Angeles. And in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz. The four biggest letters of the week are not
1: M-E-T-A, Meta, the new name of Facebook. I love it how Google says, we're alphabet. And Facebook says, we're meta. Don't you like us better? No, no we don't. But the biggest four letters of the week are ABBA. ABBA. Their album Voyage is out this week. Very excited.
0: Oh, I mean, okay. I was wondering Adele
1: that. is coming out soon. ABBA's coming out now. It's a great couple of weeks for people who love pop.
0: Okay, but are they going to go on tour? I can't wait to see them at, uh, at 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 Madison Square Garden when they when they come Yeah, to I Madison. have to go to
1: London and you can see them there forever. Or at least for the next few years. You know all about it. If you checked us out a couple episodes ago, a week ago, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, all the ABBA news. We keep you up on top of ABBA all the time, but we do occasionally cover other stuff. What are we going to talk about this week, Sperling?
0: Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we've got some scary news for you. I know Halloween is over. I know it's over. But October is the biggest month for movies in a long, long time. And Halloween, by the way, has never been good to movies. Everybody's out trick-or-treating. Nobody's in the movie theaters. It's more proof that people want to go to the cinema. In Germany, exhibitors are rebelling against movies that are showing day and date on Disney+. Plus. In contrast, exhibitors freaked out when Netflix tried to show movies in theaters instead of just you know, streaming them. I guess that was in France where that happened. Oui. And in Ch- yeah, and in China, you know what? A COVID outbreak has more and more movie theaters shutting down in certain territories. On inside baseball, we look at the continued fallout from the unnecessary tragedy on the set of Rust. That's the Alec Baldwin production. In Europe, guns with live rounds of ammunition or even blanks are rare to non-existent. In the United States, it's cheaper and easier not to use such guns real guns are easier to use but that may so, not no, be. no 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 the
1: other no the other way around no 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 no
0: it says it's u.s <laughs> it, it's in europe guns or live rounds
1: are rare or non-existent in the u.s it's cheaper and easier not to use live live rounds it's cheaper it's easier it's better it's cheaper they, if uh, we found out, it's cheaper oh,
0: okay. to not use
1: real guns. All the hassle and worry and, and procedural checks, it's actually cheaper to not use guns with even blanks in them.
0: Well, in any case, as we all know, Hollywood it loves a good gun. It has a little bit of a love affair with real guns. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first... As always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office.
1: That's right. And we're looking at box office around the world for the week ending October 31st, Sunday, Halloween Day, at least here in North America and for most of the world. Does every country celebrate Halloween? No, they don't. But a lot of them do, I think.
0: You know, I, I've seen pictures of people in the United Arab Emirates in obviously the UK and in France. They're, they were all dressed up. I don't know well, what yes, that means to when go they to wear a, When they
1: wear a beret in France, that's not actually dressing up.
0: Oh, wait, you mean they're not dressing up as French people? No, no, no.
1: Okay. Yeah, I don't know. But, you know, if you celebrate Halloween in some territory or country where we might not expect us, tell us about it.
0: Yes, you can write to us. Dirt at Showbiz Sandbox is our... Email address, that's D-I-R-T, at showbizsandbox.com. We're also, uh, you can leave us a voicemail. One, what is our, our phone number? 888 567 sand 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter, at sandbox is our handle. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox, where you can like our page and follow us, and we'll, we'll update you on the latest entertainment news.
1: That's right. So we'll give you the box office and then we'll talk to you about all the information surrounding these movies. We've got about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven movies making more than $10 million around the world at last week's box office. At number one is the James Bond flick, No Time to Die. $79 million this week. It passes the $600 million mark. It's now at $605 million worldwide. It costs maybe $300 million to make. It really needs to get to a billion or $900 million, certainly to be considered a full-on success story just from box office alone. But these are very good numbers. At number two is Dune, another $71 million. That's just about to hit the $300 million mark. And of course, it's available on HBO Max at the same time. And they have greenlit Dune 2. So you can go see this movie and know that in a couple years, you'll get to find out how it all works out.
0: Now you know it's interesting. I know you don't want me to interrupt you there, but uh, do you want to talk about Dune Two now and Dune do- the whole Dune of it all now? Or I thought we just want- did. Oh, okay. Well, I was going to mention that a lot of the exhibitors I spoke to over the- even before the film came out predicted that this film, at least in North America, would have a huge drop off because they've noted that all of the films that are showing on HBO Max, even when they have a big first weekend they will have a a, a larger than normal drop off in it in the second week And, uh, you know, there's the piracy issue, of course. Well, and that didn't
1: happen with Doom because this is a movie you really want to see on a big screen. A lot of those other movies like The Sopranos film or the Clint Eastwood movie and some other films, both were not critically or commercially popular (laughs) and were not movies that you felt obliged to see on the big screen. Obviously, any movie is better on the big screen. Truly, most movies benefit from a crowd being immersed in it. But there are movies, small, intimate films where you don't necessarily feel obliged Doom, you don't. You know you're not seeing it properly if you watch it at home. I don't the care second, how good your TV set is.
0: The second thing I would point out is that uh, Denis Villeneuve said, "Hey, you know." Uh, please. (laughs) You know, well, first of all, yeah, please. He said, you know what? Um, here's the deal. I am tied up until the fall of 2022 and you guys want to release this movie in the fall of 2023. So
1: they've announced to release it all already. It's ridiculous. It'll probably be pushed to 2024. We don't care about the release date. They'd like to announce it and put their flag down, you know, before they even have a script, which I don't think they have yet. So You know, relax on the release date. But it is greenlit. Warner Brothers, of course, is guaranteeing at least a 45-day theatrical, which is, duh, that's what you would want for a movie that's this big and this potentially popular. But I should say also, I messed up the information on Dune in 3D. In China, there's a lot of tension because most movies... uh, Okay. A few years ago, they raised the cap on international films being allowed into the Chinese market. However, they had to be released in 3D, a lot of them. (laughs) They had to be like you know, premium format IMAX types movies because they were pushing that. And it turns out when you release movies in multiple formats like 2D or 2D IMAX and 3D IMAX and anything else that there might be, that this creates issues and can delay your approval process. So a lot of major studios don't want to take any chances and they just say, all right, we have to put it out in IMAX as well. So we'll just do 3D IMAX because that's where they make the most money. And Chinese fans have been complaining for, they're like, oh my God, this movie should not be in 3D. I don't want to see it in 3D. I do want to see it on IMAX, but you're killing me here. And so there's been a lot of blowback about that. Variety's Rebecca Davis had a good story about this last week. About fans in China whose only option when they were going to see Dune was in 3D, which they did not want. It's the world's biggest 3D market, but a lot of people are annoyed that if they want to see a big movie in IMAX, they have to see it in 3D. So it's a good story. We have a link to it in our show notes. Uh, so check that out. And speaking you of now, world-
0: can I can I point something out?
1: Sure. And we've completely stopped the box office.
0: <laughs> well, well, wait a second. This is actually interesting. So mm-hmm. uh, in a couple of the uh, conferences I've been to lately or attended virtually, uh, there has been a, a question about 3D movies, at least here in North America and, and Canada and Mexico. And the question has been like, well, okay, who's still showing them? And because right. the way Real D actually, and they're, without a doubt, the largest provider here in North America of 3D equipment, the way they did their, their sales is they'd say, we will install the equipment and we will just take a cut of the sale. Okay. So that extra $2 that you charge, we'll take a dollar of it. And so the exhibitor said, fine, I don't have to pay anything. Well, right. now nobody wants to see 3D and they have the, the exhibitors are not incentivized at Well, well, nor are the studios because people
1: don't want to see movies in 3D. This is not a a burning desire. If you spend a lot of time and effort to create Avatar, people will say, yes, you're telling me I put a lot of time and energy into this, see it in 3D, and they'll do it. But when you take a movie like Bond, like they're doing in China right now, or Dune, and pushing it into 3D when people don't even want to see it in 3D, and it wasn't made to be seen in 3D, people have learned their lesson. It's annoying. It's tiresome. It's not a good way to see a movie especially, of course, if it's not designed that way. Little kids don't like the glasses in general. So people don't want it. It's got nothing to do with the theaters being incentivized. They're not making the movies. They're not pushing them in 3D because nobody wants to pay extra to see a movie in a format it wasn't meant for. Exactly. You shouldn't even see a, you shouldn't even see a regular movie in IMAX. That's stupid. Why pay extra to see a movie on an IMAX screen unless it's designed to be in IMAX and it was shot primarily in IMAX? If it's not shot primarily in IMAX, you're a fool to pay a premium price to see a movie that way because that ain't the best way to see a regular movie.
0: Well, the good news is because of the way the cameras work now, a lot of those films are being shot in IMAX. So like Dune well, was a
1: few of the big movies, yes. A, yeah, a, a big yeah. chunk of Bond and Dune, and we all know it. But, you know, the Battle of Lake Changjin, Venom, Halloween Kills, The Addams Family, Ron's Gone Wrong, Antlers, My Hero Academia, The French Dispatch, Last Night in Soho, Shang-Chi. These should not be seen in IMAX. The Last Duel. Don't waste your money. Sorry about that. I, I don't
0: think they're. I don't think they're available in IMAX. All of those movies.
1: Well, yeah, they show regular movies in IMAX when they're screens. Sure, they put stuff that wasn't shot in IMAX on on IMAX screens or premium format or all that nonsense or 3D. None of those movies should be seen in 3D. No, there's no movie out right now that people should be seeing in 3D. And so, of course, people don't want to pay extra to see, I have a worst theatrical experience. What theaters are uh, incentivized to do is to make sure you see the movie in the best possible way, and that does not include 3d unless it's avatar or some other movie designed to be seen that way. The box office, no time to die made 80 million. Dune made just over 70 million. The battle of lake, Shenzhen, the Chinese epic made another $58 million. It's made $858 million worldwide. This is according to other numbers, not Comscore, because other people have about 17 or 18 more million dollars in the booty there. That's huge. 858 million dollars. The highest grossing Chinese made film of all time is Wolf Warrior 2. That's at 874 million dollars. So as we've been saying for a few weeks now, this movie's just chugging along. This is going to do it. It's done it. It could hit a billion dollars. Frankly, it's not slowing up. It's at 850 million. It made 60 million last week. This movie could get to a billion dollars. It's certainly going to get to 900 million dollars and take the prize for the biggest movie of all time made in China, a made in China film that is a monster. It's the biggest global hit this year. So well, that's can, very impressive. Can I impressive. mention China
0: for a minute? because sure. Sit. I you know since we've already blown up box office, we may as well do it here too. Right. You're on By the way, just just for those keeping track at home, keeping score at home, we're only on the third film at <laughs> the box office this week and it's totally my fault. But I will give you some interesting facts here. Did you know that the China numbers for uh, non-local productions, so non-Chinese productions, are abysmal. Uh, you know, there is not a single Hollywood film in, certainly not in the top five, and I think there's only like one or two in the top ten. Well, Dune is, isn't it? No, no, I'm sorry, for the year. For the year, sorry. I think it's F9 and Godzilla versus Kong.
1: Well, they've almost let no other films in, so they've really kept the lid on that. So they, yes. when they don't let you play your films and when the theater is shut down for months at a time, that's hard to do. That's an interesting thing to point out, but it's more about simply not that they don't care about uh, 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 international films, but they're not being allowed in the country or they're being allowed in a shortened time span on off-peak months. So, you know, they're really doing everything they can to prop up their own industry. In fact, right now, about 13% of the potential box offices shut down in China because of COVID. Uh, Conversely, Japan has started to lift some restrictions, like you can take your mask down, to eat popcorn and drink soda. Korea has also lifted restrictions. This is happening all over the world, of course. So we know all these numbers and, you know, Dune or the Battle of Lake Chongjin is doing this amidst COVID lockdowns. So that makes it all the more impressive any money these people are making. But check out Rebecca Davis's story in Variety. We have a link in our show notes. We're talking about Japan, China and Korea. Well, guess what? Global box office this year, it may hit 22 billion dollars. That's about half of what we did in 2019 before the pandemic, but of course, it's much better than 2020. So, you know, that's good to hear. No Time to Die, $80 million. Dune, $70 million. The Battle of Lake Changjin, just under $60 million. And now here's another Hollywood film, Venom, Let There Be Carnage, $44 million this week. That's about to pass the $400 million mark. So... Dune is passing $300 million. Venom, Let There Be Carnage is passing $400 million. and No Time to Die, the James Bond flick, is passing $600 million. They all would have done different and better numbers in a different world, but given where we're at, that's very impressive. And Venom is a scary movie, but it's not going to fall off a cliff the way our next film was. Halloween Kills, that made $24 million the week of Halloween. It's at $115 million worldwide. You can watch it on Peacock. It came out on Peacock, day and date but you can you can guess next week it'll barely be on the chart if at all the same is true for the adams family too that made 60 million dollars the animated flick Inexpensive movies. It's at almost $90 million, so they've done very well. And there's a couple other uh, horror films Antlers with Jesse Plemons from Friday Night Lights. That made $7 million in its opening, not very strong. And Edgar Wright, who's an interesting talent, his new horror time travel flick last night in Soho made $6 million in its opening week. So clearly the big money for people who wanted to be scared went to the Adams family, too. If you had kids and Halloween kills and Venom, let there be carnage. Back on the box office, we have a a movie called Ron's Gone Wrong, an animated sci-fi flick. That made another $16 million this week. It's at $32 million worldwide. Yet another animated film. It's a Japanese anime. It's My Hero Academia, World Heroes' Mission. This movie has These series is doing quite well in North America. They've really broken through. I mean, they're making millions of dollars. They're not making tens of millions, but they are charting and they are being seen and people are aware of them. So this movie made uh, $7 million this week. It's at $38 million worldwide. So North America is proving a very strong market for Japanese anime at the box office. We've been buying their mangas. We've been watching their TV shows. Now we're starting to turn out to see these movies in the theater. We mentioned last night in Soho at six million. That's what Shang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings made. That's still bopping along. That's at four hundred twenty-five million dollars worldwide. You know, you can add at least two to three hundred million dollars in normal times for that movie. Uh It's got about another two weeks in theaters before it appears on Disney Plus.
0: Now but- you know, I know that we're you know what's coming up right now uh, next week, November fifth, is mm-hmm. the Eternals, right? And and right. and the big. Question is, will this be released in China? Because, of course, Chloe Zhao's last film, Nomadland, wasn't because she said some negative things about China. I don't think it's going to be released in China. But what I really want to point out is the fact that it's two hours and 37 minutes long and you look at Bond and it's two hours and 44 minutes and you look at Dune and it's two and a half hours. What is the deal with it? Guys, 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 less is more.
1: Discipline has gone out the window. That's right. Yeah, but it's also their perhaps misguided idea that a movie should be an event. And if you're going to go to the theater, I better give them full value. The best value is a movie that's the right length. I don't care how long it is, as long as it's good. If it needs to be three hours, great. But did it need to be two hours and 43 minutes or two and a half hours? I don't know. Guess what? The next movie on our list is The Last Duel. That's the Ridley Scott film. It made $5 million, stars Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. It's at $23 million worldwide, big budget movie, not doing that well. How long is it? Two hours and 33 minutes. That might no, be what you might oh, expect okay. from an epic historical drama, but it's two and a half hours long. So uh, yet another example where in the old days, that never would have happened. You know, uh, the, the Warner Brothers be like, what? Are you kidding? You think Harvey Weinstein had heavy scissor hands? And no, please. <laughs> they would not have allowed that. In 100 minutes, max. Uh, The Departures, this is a Japanese drama that won the first Oscar for that country. It's about a man who prepares bodies for funerals. Huge success story in Japan, this movie. It came out like in 2008, I want to say, uh, it led to tourist sites that would take people to scenes where the movie was shot. It, it led to mangas and a stage play production of this story, Departures. And now it's being released in China because China needs properties, but they don't want to show Hollywood as much. So they're spreading up the, 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 the opportunity a little bit. And Departures opened up in China and made $4 million. Not bad. Uh, $74 million worldwide is where they've taken that movie now. The French Dispatch, the Wes Anderson film, that went wider. That's available, though not here in Birmingham yet, but it is on more screens. and made another $4 million. It's at $7 million and counting. Uh, so that's pretty good. Um, looking at the Global Box Office again, we're rebounding strongly from last year. But all this stuff, is it available day and date? Will it be available in 17 days, 45 days? It's giving everybody a headache. And German cinema,
0: they're not happy, are they? No, they basically said, here's what we'll do with your your, uh, day and date films. Uh, Not show them. They're just not...
1: No, no. They're showing Disney Plus movies on day and date, but what they're doing is cutting the prices to those movies in half.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? You're talking about not being able to keep up. I can't keep up with who is and is not not playing Disney movies or day and date movies, and who is or is not playing them, but heavily discounting them, and who is upset that they're showing movies that are streaming movies, but they're showing them in movie theaters, and then quickly with a quick... I just can't keep up anymore.
1: Well, guess what? There's a good place you can go to, because where I learned about that German cinema story is... The Marquee Newsletter, available from Celluloid Junkie. So sign up for it now, Patrick Von Sikowski. That's where I learned that story. You ought to pay attention to that website. It's pretty good. So that's what they did. (laughs) They cut the ticket price in half, which means Disney's potential revenue is cut in half. But if people show up and they buy popcorn and soda... The theaters get to keep every penny of the concessions. In France, they're having the opposite problem. In Germany, they're annoyed that movies are available on streaming day and day. In France, they're annoyed that a movie that's streaming might be in theaters because you're supposed to wait like three years before you show a movie on streamers. Now, they're trying to negotiate a new rule. The best they can come up with is a year, which seems insane to me, that if you show a movie in a cinema, it cannot appear on a streamer for one year. Uh, But that's what they're working out now. And while that's all going on, said hey we got some really cool movies we're just going to showcase them in theaters and we're just show them in theaters and they're like no you're not there was a revolt that's all i can call it a revolt and they finally pulled back on their plans and they're just going to show them in like Non-commercial theater settings, sort of like Lincoln Center, places like that. That's the the French equivalent, obviously. So they're showing these movies that they wanted to showcase for a few days on a big screen, and they're showing them in non-commercial venues so that the French exhibitors will not uh, you know burn them at the stake like they did Jean d'Arc.
0: You know, uh, what's interesting is, uh, Netflix here in Los Angeles, they, they, uh, I think they bought the Egyptian in New York. They have the Paris theater, right? Mm -hmm. And then recently Cinepolis, which opened this movie theater in the Pacific Palisades, which is a very upscale community right along the coast. Uh, let's put it this way. It's where Steven Spielberg lives. Okay. And Tom Mm -hmm. Hanks down the street from him. Uh, and they, they opened this in this brand new kind of walking market. It's like a, you know, a little like Disneyland type market uh, is doing incredibly well, except for Cinepolis, the the, uh, movie theater operator that wasn't doing well for them. And they said they couldn't get out of their lease. It was a brand new theater. I went to the opening. It was absolutely stunning, absolutely beautiful. Nobody would go to it. And when I was talking to the people who opened, I I thought, well, why isn't anybody? Oh, wait a second. Pacific Palisades, everybody who lives there they all have their own screening rooms. So what Netflix did was they came in they came in and took the lease over. And I think that's a smart move for them because what they can do is show that movie to the awards voters who all live in that area. And there are a lot of important awards voters who live in the Pacific Palisades or on that side of town in Santa Monica. And now they have a place to kind of showcase their movies to a lot of awards voters. That sounds like a good idea. Yeah, well, it's done, so. (laughs) Well, uh, moving on,
1: uh, there are people, you know, those are cool people, Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg. There are other people I admire in Hollywood, and sometimes they let you down a little bit or you get confused. Ice Cube and Dave Chappelle. This is sort of a pandemic social justice section. Ice Cube had to drop out of a film because he refused to get vaccinated. I'm a little confused about that because he is very pro-mask. He he made masks. He 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 trumpeted the mask. He said, put on a mask. Don't be a fool. Uh, he was very positive and pro-mask during the pandemic, which we are still in the midst of. And that was great to see. So I'm not quite sure why he refuses to get vaccinated. That's a, a little disappointing. I wish he'd followed the science. And obviously, if we knew he had some underlying issue, he would probably say that. So I assume it's some objection uh, which is not rooted in science or fact. So that, that's a shame. And Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle was in concert and he invited Joe Rogan on stage. I'm like, oh my God, Joe Rogan is such a tool. Like, are you, are you just trying to troll us now, Dave? You know, come on. That's very, very upsetting. Like, who next, Tucker Carlson? Uh, but anyway, uh, Gary Baum. In the Hollywood Reporter has a very good story, a major feature about the retrograde, blah, 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 about the very discriminatory world of stand up comedy and what it's like for women and how harassed and belittled they are even today. Why Me Too never made any headway into the world of stand up comedy. It's a very good story, uh, well worth
0: checking out. And I'm, I'm tempted, tempted to say, I'm tempted to say that's kind of funny. I would have thought that it would have uh, made some headway in the world of comedy. Get it? That's kind of funny. Is that- I said, that's funny. Oh, okay. Um, It's it's about comedy. It's about comedy. I haven't watched squid game yet. Have you? No, I have not. I have not because I I don't have time. I don't have time. There's too much to see too much to do too many films to watch. There's too many, too many film festivals. I've missed out
1: on the streaming numbers again this week. I saw one report, but it was a confused one that didn't have all the right numbers. But Squid Game hit the rare 3 billion units, 3 billion minutes viewed uh, the week of September 22nd, 27th through November 2nd. So the end of no, September. Wait, you mean September? I'm sorry. Yeah, in, in, in September
0: twenty seventh through October second. Into October
1: second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, am I! I'm. I, I shouldn't drink before the show. Shouldn't drink. Make a note of that. So yes. Yeah, so that at the end of September, the early October. That was the third big week. It opened to like 250 million minutes. It exploded into 1.9 billion minutes. The second week it's third week of availability. It hit 3 billion minutes. So this is when suddenly everybody in the whole world was talking about this show and going crazy about it. Uh, those are just numbers of course, from Amazon prime, Disney plus Hulu, Netflix, and now Apple. And it's just North American viewing in the home. It doesn't really cover your laptops, your phones, or any other way you might see a show. But if you're watching it on your TV and they can track it, these are the best numbers that we have right now. Um, I'd love to get better numbers and more consistently. Uh, they don't always have it in the trades. If you've got access and can tell me what to, a newsletter to sign up for or something,
0: you know, tell me about it, please. Yeah, it would be kind of a, at least a big deal for you if you could get you know live numbers. And
1: that, that's right. I, was, I thought you were going to give the email address or something, but I will say this, looking at acquired shows and stuff, it's fascinating what the sort of long tail. Netflix is very focused on what becomes a hit within the first 30 days, which I don't get at all because they have this big, huge library. My mom's watching Downton Abbey. You know what? And guess what? Downton Abbey is number eight on the list of acquired series from like a week or two ago. It's probably still on the list this week. Gilmore Girls is on that list. So you know The stuff that they have that's valuable is not just the new toy, the new glittery toy that came out this week. When you've got Downton Abbey years after the show was over, Gilmore Girls on the top 10 years after the show ended, it's not that these numbers are low. They're solid numbers, hundreds of millions of minutes. These are still very valuable properties and there's no reason not to tout the shows that take a long time to catch on or shows that are popular for a long time after their heyday. So uh, that's all cool stuff. And I think something like the Gilmore Girls making the top 10 of acquired series lists, that is a big deal.
0: Oh, well, if that's a big deal, then it must be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop Hour weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines and entertainment and we tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story is about the Broadway League, which refuses to share the box office info it normally produces every week of the year. With COVID and all the crazy changes in schedules, it fears the information would paint the industry in a bad light we say facts are facts, okay? And they shouldn't really shy away from them. I mean, everybody knows what a strange, difficult time it is. And hiding box office figures, really, it helps no one. Uh, We can't even tell you the positive stories now, okay? Well, the league hasn't changed its mind, but it does think the overall news is is good. It's, It's trending positive. So it's now reporting on the total weekly grosses for all Broadway shows on the total grosses to date. So it's Every show with about 26 shows playing Broadway grossed $22 million for the week ending October 24th. Now the season began on August 4th and so far has raked in $105 million, Uh, which, you know, Michael, you and I, you know, that's lunch money for us, but uh, is this a big deal or a big whoop?
1: Yeah. Nice, nice toy. You got there a hundred million dollars. Uh, it's a, it's a big deal because I think they're going to regret it when they're not show by show specific. And we can't say, wow, Hamilton is packing them in, but new shows are struggling, or we just had two plays, this crazy attempt to put two one hour plays on Broadway. They're performing in repertoire. One is, this is the room. The other one is Dana H both excellent shows. I love seeing them on Broadway. I wish they worked, but they're closing a month early very depressing. I'm sorry to see that. I would really love to have championed them. Uh, but we can't do it cuz they're about to close. But when you don't get that granular breakdown of how individual shows are going and we can't put it all in context, all we get is this big number. Well, guess what? This big number may start to drop and then what are they going to do? Then they're going to stop reporting that number again. You know, but right now this week in season to date, Broadway has sold about 85% of all tickets available. Not That's every not show's bad. Made- That's great. And not every show has every, but not every show has every seat available. You know, they're not opening up the houses necessarily to every single person. It depends on the show and the house. Some are packing them in, others aren't. But that's pretty great. And we'd love to tell that story. If all these shows, I think that is really from the first week first week or two, especially though, especially as more big shows come online, there's that pent up demand to see a show that's you know haven't been able to see in two years. But that's going to fade away quickly because everybody local said, you know what? I want to go to Broadway. I want to support a show. I haven't seen a play in two years. I'm going. And they went, but they're not going to go every week or all the time like they used to. So those numbers are going to go down, I think. And are all shows doing the same? Mrs. Doubtfire, the musical, is in previews. I didn't know that. And I pay attention to Broadway. So they are missing opportunities to promote the new shows, tell good stories where they can and put it all in context. I think knowledge is power and it's never good to hide the facts from people. It doesn't help you or them.
0: You know, I can't remember where I was reading it, but uh, it was essentially a story about this this issue. Uh, of reporting the Broadway box office grosses and uh, the Broadway league was having an issue because some producers wanted to report the grosses, others didn't. And the question was, if 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 the people who don't want to report them, even if the numbers are good, they will be seen as bad for not reporting them. So they said, okay, we'll just do it. You know what? Rather than keep track of who does and who doesn't, we'll just do an aggregate. And that's, Well, no, it's not
1: that they can't or does or doesn't. They just didn't want to. It's like they wanted to hide the news. They were worried that it wouldn't be good, and so they went, well, guess what? That's the same for every show. It's a stupid decision. Uh, it's better that they're at least telling the aggregate because they've got a good story to tell. 85% of all tickets sold. That's but good. no, the, the, the producers who wanted to hide the facts, who are you helping? Nobody. You know what? If I was thinking of seeing Dane H and I found out it was you know half off, I'd know, oh, I can get a cheap ticket. You know, Sorry, but that means, oh, there's an opportunity for me to see that show. It's just open. Maybe I'm assuming... It's full and it's not. Or maybe I don't even know Mrs. Doubtfire is previewed, but they can't tell you about the first preview grosses. Maybe they're great, in which case free publicity. So they just miss out on every possible way.
0: Well, now let's talk about some old shows, okay? because speaking of theater, it's time for our annual look at the most produced plays and musicals in high schools around the United States. Now, Michael, Mm. you love this segment. Even though you can't understand why the musical The Addams Family keeps topping the list. I don't understand (laughs) that either. It's not good. uh, Yeah. Well, new to the list this year is the theory of relativity. The theory of relativity. That's hard to say when you're actually trying to figure out whether it's a biopic of Albert Einstein, which it is not. It is an ensemble (laughs) work about teens and their feelings. I get it, relative. I get it, yeah. Now, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, is also back on the list of musicals, along with Godspell, High School Musical, and Steve Martin and Edie Brickell's Bright Star. That, to me, is a little surprising. Uh, in plays, an adaptation of the comedy film Clue remains on top, among, along with, by the way, Almost Maine, another ensemble work, which a radio play version of It's a Wonderful Life, Peter and the Starcatcher, and at some brave schools, this really did surprise me, the Laramie Project. I was like, really? Wow, okay. Big deal or big whoop. Yeah, good for them. It's a, it's a big whoop, of course. We
1: love this list every year. You will also see stuff like Our Town, some Shakespeare, and of course, A Christmas Carol. The radio play I've seen, the radio play uh, It's a Wonderful Life. What you watch is people coming into a radio station, into the studio to perform It's a Wonderful Life for people listening on the radio. So they come in like, hey, Joe, hey, Bob, and they get ready, and then they perform It's a Wonderful Life with like the sound effects and doing everything right there. You're watching them as if you're an audience in the radio studio audience, and then they're done, and they say goodnight, and they leave it's very charming. It really is a nice, fresh way to see It's a Wonderful Life. I loved seeing it at the Irish Rep in New York City a few years ago. And it's great for high school. It got a lot of roles. It's the fun of watching how they do sound effects. So that's great. And the guy who did that also did a radio play that's somehow about Hitchcock. And I guess scenes from his most famous movies. I don't know what that is, but I'm interested. So there are people like Joe Landry who really make a specialty of creating stuff that uh, I don't know that he focuses on the high schools, but that stuff works well for high schools. And so it's, it's good to see you have minimal props because it's a radio play. So uh, it's really in. And Steve Martin, Edie Burkell's Bright Star, that really surprises me too. So, uh, you know, it's cool to find these things like the theory of relativity and almost main that only play in high schools or basically only in high schools and other stuff that transfers over like classics, like you're a good man, Charlie Brown. It's a real great way to see what the, uh, what, what kids are experiencing when they get the chance. Put on live theater.
0: Yeah, and Billy Shakespeare still a still a popular. Still doing it. Midsummer, Midsummer. Night's Dream, big hit, big hit. Yeah. Exactly. I think that guy's got a future. Uh, Now, the Endeavor Talent Agency, who, you know, Billy Shakespeare could go over and get represented. they've,
1: (laughs) They've got a future, but it ain't in production.
0: Right. Well, they are approaching a second round of bids on their production company. The bids are around $750 million for the company behind Killing Eve, Nine Perfect Strangers, and other properties. Of course, Endeavor signed a new agreement with the Writers Guild of America. It was that code of conduct that they signed, and that code of conduct requires them to give up majority control of production companies so that Endeavor won't be both the boss and the agent for a writer, so they're not the producer and then, of course, representing the writer because that creates an inherent conflict of interest. Similarly, CAA, Creative Artists Agency, they sold off a majority stake in the company WIP, W-I-I-P. They sold that to a South Korean firm. WIP is behind HBO's Mayor of East Town. So is this a big deal or a big whoop?
1: Well, you know, for two seconds, I felt sort of bad for him. I thought, oh, wow, look at that. CAA did of, Mayor of Easttown and Endeavor did Killing Eve and Nine Bird. They must be like, see, we're really good at this. It's like, wait, if you want to be a producer, go be a producer. Don't also try and be an agent. You know, you, If you think that's your future, knock yourself out. Nobody's stopping you.
0: Well, yeah, be a a management firm because management firms are allowed to do that. Well,
1: and as well, though, uh, again, if your main focus is to be a producer, be a producer because if I want my manager to be focused on what I'm doing, not what they want to do. So, yeah, I don't really want a manager who's running around doing other stuff. (laughs) So, again, if you want to produce TV shows and movies, go produce TV shows and movies. Don't become a manager and don't become an agent. You know, mostly the managers are working with their clients to do the stuff that they're doing together. I assume.
0: Well, I think it depends. I mean, most of the firms, and by firms, I mean these are businesses, not just like one person who's a manager. Uh, there they really is uh, a split, meaning that there are managers who are literally managing clients. The 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 talent, and then there are people who it's like a production company. They're out there trying to make stuff, uh, and you know Brillstein Gray, for instance, did the Larry Sanders show, and uh, you know they, Larry Sanders was a client, but then they also produced a show around him, or around you know Gary Shanley. I uh, did I say Larry Sanders was a. <laughs> Yes, you did. I'm still
1: trying to figure out what the hell you were saying. Yeah, Gary Gary Shanley. Shanley. Not the Larry
0: David show. Not Larry, whatever.
1: Yeah, Yeah. stop all of that. All I want to say is that you were uh, a little surprised. You know, they have a two year deadline. It's probably less than two years now where they have to sell it off. We can see CAA has already sold off a majority stake, Endeavor has just sold off a stake, or they're getting close to it. And the reason is the longer they wait, the less negotiating power they have. You know, right, they've exactly. got two years, but if they don't, if they don't make a deal now and suddenly it's a year or six months, then people know, oh, you need to sell, don't you? How you doing? <laughs> I'll give you 50 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> so well, they're, they're now obviously from a position through- of strength
0: is a good idea. Yeah. And they're going through the process. So, I mean, they're, they're actively going through the process and everybody sees it. Okay. Well, a Spanish author who broke down barriers in the world of crime fiction and top prizes turns out to be a bit of a mystery herself. Now, author Carmen Mola was a married professor who lived in Madrid and churned out three highly acclaimed novels about a female inspector, a female detective. That's what we were told. Yes, yes. Her latest book won a top literary prize in Spain, where she's from, and not just any prize, by the way. It's a one million euro award, the biggest amount, the biggest prize money in the world, bigger than the Nobel Prize for Literature, and it's called the Premio Planeta de Novella. Premio
1: Planeta de Novella. Premio Planeta de Novella. That sounds Italian, but anyway.
0: Yeah, well, when Signora Mola came on stage (laughs) to claim it, it turns out that, in fact, the books were written by three men. Yes, three different men. Outrage about the deception ensued. Did the men take advantage of how a woman writing a crime novel would be received? Or did they reveal the biases that the industry and indeed society must be grappling with? And is this a big deal or a big whoop?
1: Well, it's interesting.
0: Uh, The idea that
1: that there's an advantage for a woman novelist is silly, I think, because people say, you've taken away a slot that should have gone to a woman. It's like, Uh, Now that's a little backwards because now you're arguing that women have it easier or something. That doesn't make any sense. But women have written about men, male characters, men have written women characters. Uh, The deception, of course, you don't like to be told something and then find out it's not true. Uh, You understood why J.K. Rowling took on a pseudonym to write her Robert Galbraith novels, because she wanted to be treated, you know, like a writer and see what it would be like. Could she break out with this book without people knowing it's J.K. Rowling? We understood that and accepted that. In this case, it seems more complicated. It's three TV writers, I think, basically, who have all worked together on this. It's interesting. It's challenging. I don't think there's a clear good or bad about this. It's murky. But now, I think, is the time for us to tell the world that Sperling and I are, in fact, Elena Ferrante.
0: Yes, we are. And that's why we don't do interviews, because we don't want to put journalists in that position. That's right. Yes, exactly. Uh, uh, You can send the royalty checks to. uh... Yes. (laughs) Michael, Michael, send it to me. (laughs) I'll never Uh, see the money.
1: All the ads we have that we run on this show, I'm like, how can we? You're like, oh no, we're still in the red, still in the red. Sorry, (laughs) sorry, a lot of expenses, a lot of expenses. It's time for Inside Baseball, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is time for Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and, more importantly, how they affect you. And let me tell you something there has been no bigger story in the past six months in the entertainment industry, I think, than this story. I mean, well, this, the strike, I mean, I'm not trying to downplay
1: someone's death, but the potential strike yes, with Ayatze is, right. is a big story. This is a very upsetting story. It's just so unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Nobody should die when you're making a movie. Why uh, don't you catch us up? Tell us yeah. what, what happened. So, so th- th- there's, there's, a, there's a number of things going on. One is the fact that uh, we suggested that most guns on movie sets are real. That's not true at all. Um, Certainly not in North America and certainly not in Europe or the rest of the world. There is a big move towards what are called airsoft prop guns. They fire BB-like pellets. Uh, which can break the skin in certain cases. Uh, they also have them biodegradable so that when you get the BB sprayed all over everywhere, they, they go away. Um, they can have an action like a real gun. So they look pretty realistic, but they're the sort that are really used in recreational games and fields. And now even the military and police use airsoft prop guns for training. So they're very realistic looking, but they are not guns in any way, shape or form. Muzzle flashes are added in post. And the only reason they're not universal is really just inertia. There's no reason they're not going to be. And in fact, there was a story. uh, Do I have it in here? Um, No, I don't. They spoke to a producer, and a couple years ago, he was like, Hey, what's the cost? You know, what if we used it? And they were like, Well, that would be cheaper if we just used fake guns, fake things, and just added in the muzzle flashes after. That's cheaper than all the safety procedures you need when you have a live gun on set. And by live, we mean even with cartridges in them, anything that can be you know, projectiled out. So he's like, it's cheaper. Why the hell aren't we doing it? Really? It's North America's love of guns. In fact, using CG for gunfire is safer and cheaper. And Slate spoke with a prop master in the industry. who has been doing this for a decade in North America. He has never worked on set with a live gun. Never. He won't do it. And he doesn't have to. They use plastic replicas, airsoft blowback guns. You can get electronic guns now known as non-guns. There's one place in LA called the Independent Studio Services. They provide electronic guns. I'll bet they're hiring right about now because I bet a lot of people have been calling them up. Uh, The Rookie, of course, had a ban out. What The Rookie, the ABC drama did, they're refusing to use any live guns. And specifically, they're not going to use even quarter load or half load blanks. You know, that's, that's what they're doing. If you go to Europe, All guns are required to be plugged. You know, like just there's something down the barrel. There's nothing can get out. And it's absolutely forbidden to bring live ammunition onto a set. Guns are never pointed at camera, which I did not understand. The camera is cheated sometimes to make it look like they are. If for some reason you want to point the the gun at the camera lens, and of course, there's often an operator behind it or always, doesn't have to be. You can operate those cameras by remote control and you would. Now, what I don't understand is that in a scene, people point guns at each other all the time. I'm assuming every time there's a scene where actors are pointing at the act that they're are are they all fake. I mean, because you see people sometimes standing next to each other with a gun or pointed at their head. So guns are pointed at other characters in a movie, uh, from what I can tell. So that rule about never pointing at the camera where there are people behind it, that makes sense to me, but on a in a scene, I don't know, but it doesn't matter what you say. Uh, I have a friend who works in movies. He is a gun owner. He's like, you know, it's ridiculous. If they'd followed safety procedures, we'd be fine. They didn't follow any of the safety procedures. They didn't do it right. And you're like, yes, of course, that's when accidents happen. But the idea that everyone's going to do it right all the time is BS. It never works that way. No one ever does everything the right way all the time. And guess what? There's no issue if you don't have live guns on the set, no blank cartridges, no live guns, nothing like that. Then, You're never going to make a mistake that's going to lead to somebody dying. You're going to lead to a mistake that leads to something far less serious. And that's what we want here, isn't it?
0: Yeah, now I actually wound up speaking with uh, a, a a prop master, actually, who lives in in my neighborhood and uh, kids are friends, our kids are friends. And uh, whatever he said to you, he's had to say 800 times in the last week, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, no, it's, he said, you sh- sure enough, everybody is talking about this now. Uh, and when he hires armorers, they all come with their their stash, you know, they're they're you know, they own these things and they keep them up and they have to oil them and they have to maintain them. And it's just easier for them to go, oh, I'll just go into my, my own inventory. Uh, But he said more and more of them over time, over the last two years, because these airsoft guns, here's the good news and the bad news. They, they look real. They look very realistic. Now, what, what makes that bad news? They are used for recreational purposes. And there have been police episodes where the police have shot people who have airsoft guns. No, we're not telling you to take it out in public, but on a closed
1: film set, that won't be an issue. Yes, correct. Yeah, don't be an idiot and take an airsoft gun and run around in the field or take it to the store. You're a fool if you do that, but you're, you know, that's, yeah, that's totally,
0: no, that's a very good point, of course. Because he said, he said, it's like working with fire. He said, when you have live fire on a set, like, like flames, there are. It takes it takes way longer. There's tons of safety procedures. There's tons of things you ha- You need in place before you can even start shooting. When you have live guns, same thing. The number of steps that it takes to get that prop from the safe, which, by the way, two people have two people have to to uh, enter the password, apparently, in some of these cases uh, mm-hmm. to the set it goes through several safety checks. Obviously, in this case, Or, or at it least didn't. it should. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, In this case, it didn't. And that's the problem.
1: Right, but the, the stupid thing is, well, if they'd done it right, there wouldn't be a It's like, yeah, no. You, you don't need to have a live gun on the set. It's cheaper and easy. It's very easy to add the muzzle flash in post. It costs nothing. It's, you know, seconds of work. It's, it, it's a joke to even think of it as work. And a lot of those guns aren't real on sets. In fact, like when you have a cot show and cops are walking around with guns in their holster, those are just hunks of plastic. They don't have actual guns, even guns with cartridge. They're just hunks of plastic. They're literally not a gun. They just sit there because they're not going to be taken out in the scene. So they just look like the handle and it's a piece of plastic and there it is. That's that's what they do. That's what they should be doing for everything. The issue here, of course, is that this was a Western. This was a period film. And those guns do not have airsoft Prop gun replicas Correct. running around yeah. in the world. You want to be able to open the barrel. You want to be able to see that there's a you know all that stuff. That creates different issues. It doesn't mean you need a live gun or even guns with cartridges or blanks or anything like that. But it does create different challenges than you would have if you had a cop of today with a gun you know a gun in their holster, piece of plastic in their holster. No, so, no.
0: Something else he pointed out is mm-hmm. you know all those safety checks. And all that work costs money, mm-hmm. right? And he said, often when there's an issue, it's always on one of these low-budget films where yeah. they were trying or to- non-union,
1: Or non-union people. Yeah. And God help anybody who's non-union who wants to break in and get in the union. I understand that. But when you see a movie with union crew and then they people quit because they're unhappy and then they're hiring non-union people, that's a big warning sign for sure. Uh, but, you know, it's a tragedy. Hopefully some good can come out of it because what the hell's the point of it? Then, you know, then it really becomes even more of a tragedy. Uh, but you know, that people die every day. They shouldn't die like that, but sometimes they lead good full lives like George Butler. He was the co-director of pumping iron, the documentary that turned Arnold Schwarzenegger into a star. He died at the age of 78. Uh, George Butler co-wrote a book on the world of bodybuilding back in the seventies. Then he co-wrote the script and co-directed the film adaptation. It was called pumping iron gained a lot of attention. I don't know how much of a Commercial success it was, but it was somewhat of a success, you know, by the standards of a documentary back in the day. If you hit a million, that was a huge hit for documentary films, but this one got attention. It brought new life for the world of bodybuilding. And we're mostly thanks, of course, to that magnetic Austrian who provided the runaway star at the 1975 Mr. Olympia competition. Arnold was smoking pot. He talked about doing steroids, things he wishes he hadn't said at the time, but uh, it's a very interesting movie. Butler went on to make Pumping Iron 2, a look at women in bodybuilding. He did a profile of his friend, then presidential candidate John Kerry, and numerous other films about nature and conservation. He died of pneumonia, uh, but yeah, had a good full life. So, you know, good for him.
0: Well, and I don't know, this is the second uh, star from India, this next person, Raj uh, Rajkumar, who has died incredibly young. He died at the age of 46. Yeah, he died of a heart attack. attack.
1: Yeah, who is one of the biggest stars in India's Canada language-focused film industry, K A N N A D A. This is a language spoken by about 60 million people worldwide. About 45 million people speak it as their primary language, and another 15 million people speak it as their second or third language. So 60 million people in the context of a country of a billion not a lot, but in that world, he was a very big star, and he came to it by birth. His mom was a producer, and his dad was one of Canada's biggest stars in his day. Raj Kumar was also the host of the Canada language version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. So they had 60 million people, and they made it make TV shows just for them. That's how specialized you can get when you have. Dozens and dozens of languages in a country like India. So that's interesting. Uh, I think maybe the language has a rich and perhaps aristocratic history. It seems to be the language of some of the rulers or people in power or the elite. That seems to be the vibe I'm getting, though I may be horrifically wrong about that. But but that's what I know, I know I'm right about political satirist Mort Saul, though. He died at the age of 94. He did stand up and political satire. No Mort Saul, no Jon Stewart. He led to Lenny Bruce, Richard Pryor, George Carlin, and more. He was a big influence on all of them. He spoke in stand-up with a newspaper under his arm. That was sort of his signature. He was a guy who read the news and then talked about it. He wasn't a joke machine. He just held audiences wrapped with his smarts. Other comics kind of got annoyed by it. Like, he's not telling jokes. He's just standing there talking. Why do they like him? (laughs) That's how revolutionary he was. His album, Mort Saul on Sunset, is often considered the first modern stand-up comedy album. Obviously, there were albums with humorous songs and bits before that, but this was like capturing a modern stand-up act. Mort on Sunset was probably first. He was certainly the first comic on the cover of Time Magazine. It called him Will Rogers with Fangs.
0: I love the fact that that he spoke so quickly that that he was nicknamed Rebel Without a Pause. (laughs) That's right. Woody Allen loved him. He said
1: there were three great geniuses in the 50s, the team of Nichols and May, Jonathan Winters, and Mort Saul. And his career was really derailed almost forever. Uh, but at least for a decade, when he became obsessed, and that's the only word for it, with the Kennedy assassination, he began reading from the Warren Report report on stage, which is not that funny. And then he worked without pay for New Orleans DA and fellow conspiracy theorist Jim Garrison. He like put his career on hold to work on somebody trying to figure out the Kennedy assassination. He was very progressive, but he took on both parties. He said, Democrats are the left wing of the Republican Party. Do you want vanilla or French vanilla? He was unyielding, even in old age. In 2011, he began his show at a Mill Valley, California club before a pro-Obama crowd. And he walked up and he said, no, he can't.
0: <laughs> well, oh, that's very funny, actually. Well, you, yeah. can see, you can see why he, uh, he he had such a long and lengthy career. Funny guy. Yep. And we're kind of funny sometimes. Uh, not sometimes. really. Yeah, <laughs> actually, you're, you're right. I've been told I tell dad jokes which I'm assuming means they're very, hilarious. Very good. Yes. Hilarious. Yes. Well, you know, uh, if you want to hear more dad jokes, tune in next week. And if you want to make sure that you hear all those jokes and, and hear our next episode, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes over at Google, the Google Podcast. Uh, I don't know what it's called. The Google, just Google Play Store or Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free, you can usually find us. And if you can't let us know, by the way, Uh, please do rate and review us in any one of those aggregators. Uh, It helps us out when you you do. Not all of them allow it, but those that do like iTunes, please do rate and review us. It helps us out. Uh, That information, as well as links to all of the stories that we've discussed on today's episode, can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find those ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Now we're also on Twitter where our handle is at showbizsandbox. And we're on Facebook. We have a page on Facebook. Facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our page. Again, all that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT, and they can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Giltz can be found online and every week he's got something new and exciting. What what website is it what what do you have for us, Michael? This week it's I am Elena I'm
1: sure that's taken. It's not. Or oh. it's not available. I don't know what's going on with it, but Elena Ferrante, of course, is taken, but I am Elena Ferrante is not. Uh, Are you your own wife? I am my own wife. Yeah, okay. (laughs) That's
0: a great play. (laughs) Exactly. Well, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to MichaelGilts.com where all of his work can be found. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com where you can subscribe to The Marquee. Until next week, play nice.